Um, and you guys can flip your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 19 is where we'll be uh, putting in this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at a parable. Uh, how many of you guys enjoy parables? Uh, I find that I like teaching parables uh, more when Jesus explains what they mean than the times when he doesn't, because on the ones that he doesn't, you're kind of left to have to figure it out. And people come up with some kind of crazy ideas about what parables mean sometimes. So as we go through this one, you'll notice it's, it's very easy to track with. Um, the problem is what takes place in this particular parable doesn't seem fair or just. So um, Jesus is going to use this parable to teach us a very important truth about his kingdom. Uh, Jesus's kingdom, the, the one we're looking forward to, is completely upside down and backwards from what we're used to here. So we, we have ideas about the first and the last here. So the first here are the first, and the last here are the last. That's not the way it works in God's kingdom. And this is what we're going to be looking at today. So if you were here last week, you know, um, Pastor David stopped in what might have seemed like a weird spot. And it might look like I'm picking up in a weird spot today, but you kind of need to know uh, what happens before the parable to understand how to interpret it more, more correctly, I would say. So in the previous section, Jesus has this encounter with the rich young ruler. And, and this was a guy who fancied himself as a very upright person. It, it, when Jesus talked to him about some of the commands, he said, oh yeah, I've kept all of those perfectly. It's like, wow, you know, that's, but he believed that to be true. And um, Jesus knows our hearts though. And, and Pastor David kind of talked about how uh, he kind of found the bad tooth and poked it. So he knows what's going on in this guy's life. He knows the problem area. And so he tells them this, this thing that sounds a little weird to us. He says, in order to be saved, you need to sell all you have, all your possessions, and then follow me. Now, if you've been a Christian for long, you know, that's not the way we, we get saved by selling everything we have. So what's, what's going on here? And, and, you know, David pointed out, this was Jesus's way of letting this, this man who thought he was a master commandment keeper, know that he didn't even make it past the first commandment. And I love this. It's just, it's kind of like the conversation would be the rich man saying, yeah, I, I keep all the commandments. And, and Jesus, says, oh, really? Okay. Just for fun. Let's, let's look at the first one for a second. You shall have no other gods before you. Well, he did. He, he was worshiping his wealth and his possessions, and he wasn't willing to stop worshiping those. And so he walked away sorrowful that day. So this begs the question, for you guys right now, is there anything you're not willing to walk away from to follow God? If that's, if that's true, then you're in the same situation that this rich young ruler is in. Um, is there anything you're not willing to forsake in order to get Jesus? The only thing I know of that will, will make us willing to do that is sheer desperation. It's when we recognize our hopelessly sinful condition before a holy God that we will, we will run to him in desperation for salvation. And this is when the gospel becomes very good news. When we come to the end of ourselves and we run to him for salvation, he is ready, willing, and able to save. His arm is not too short to save. He can save any of us. He can work with somebody who's at the, the end of themselves, you know, that's, that's ready in that, in that regard. I saw this great quote by, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dane Ortland. There's a bunch of the, the Ortland clan. They're all, they all seem to be really, um, you know, great with quotes and books and things. But I saw a quote from him this week that I really liked. He said, it, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity 
that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. <laughs> I thought that was so good. And this is what, this is what Jesus is, is offering here. You know, the disciples see this rich man walk away and they say, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus gives the, the answer we all want to hear. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so that's kind of where we start out our section today. Peter's going to point out to Jesus that the disciples, these, these guys that are following Jesus, did what the rich young ruler wasn't willing to do. So that's, that's where we pick up in verse 27 of chapter 19. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And it, it, when I first read this, I think, well, this is just a typical Peter question. He's good at asking some funny questions sometimes. And, and this is kind of like, well, hey, we, we left everything. What's in it for us? And, and the more I thought about it, I didn't see it as a totally selfish question because they just watched this encounter go down with the rich man. And they must have thought, okay, he made the wrong choice, but he walked away rich. We made the choice to follow Jesus. Aren't we better off than him somehow? This is kind of what's going through his mind. But Peter's line of thinking here is reasonable. He's expectant. He's anticipating that God has more in store for us when we follow him than for those who don't. And he's absolutely right. And this is what we fail to see in the account of the rich young ruler. We, we see Jesus, you know, you know, this interaction like that he's calling this, this rich young man away from treasure. That's not what's happening. He's calling him towards treasure, real treasure, the true treasure of having God and knowing him, which is far better. And this is what we get as Christians. You know, we often think that we can be the ones that are missing out and going without, and, you know, poor us, you know, we're just, we get to suffer through this. No, we, we get so much more. We get God and we get him for eternity, eternal life, which is amazing. So in verse 28, Jesus answers Peter's question of what's in it for us. He said, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So he's basically telling the disciples, the rich young ruler ain't got nothing on you guys. You guys are going to be rich rulers in my kingdom. That's kind of what he's telling them. They, they get to sit on 12 you know, thrones and that's pretty impressive. But he doesn't just involve them. He says, and everyone, everyone who you know, has, has gone without in order to get me will be blessed beyond imagination. I, I think eternal life is, is plenty. And then he, he throws in, and a hundredfold, whatever, whatever that ends up being. I don't know, but it, it's got to be good, right? So if you've ever asked yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to take up my cross every day? Is it, is it worth it to die to self? Is it, is it worth it to, to lose out on some relationships maybe? Or is it, is it worth it to give up all that this world has to offer to follow Jesus? Here's your verse, right? Yes, it's worth it. It is so worth it. And you know, Peter put it this way, what's in it for me? Everything, everything in contrast to, to what you know, we think about. So this might be the time, though, where Peter starts to get a little self-congratulatory and start to think, eh, check us out. You know, we might do the same thing when, when Jesus says you're going to get this. And, and uh, so pride can, can quickly set in. And this is where Jesus reminds us of the upside-down nature of his kingdom, where 
No, no, the first will be last and the last will be first. And then he tells him this parable. Now, it's clear that these sections were meant to be taken together. We have chapter breaks in our Bible, and so it's easy when we read the Bible to say, okay, 19's done, now we're at 20, so forget about 19, let's move on to 20. We, we don't want to do that, because if, if you look, the way he ends chapter 19, if you look down at verse 16 of chapter 20, he repeats the statement of the, the last being first and the first last. So it's like these are bookends, and he wants us to, to read this together, right? So 20 verse 1 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last only worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do, do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, this is a really good time to point out that parables are descriptive and not prescriptive. Okay, they're describing Um, something that we're to learn an important truth from, they're not giving us a model to follow. So if you're a businessman, don't take this parable and think, okay, I'm going to implement this at work. You know, when I get this, you'd lose all your employees pretty quickly. This wouldn't go well for you. So this is just describing something we're supposed to learn from. So let's break down the parable. It starts out with the kingdom of heaven is like, and this tells us we're dealing dealing with something that's, that's different than what we normally think. It's a different economy, a different value system, a different paradigm than we're used to. So if we're thinking about this in in a worldly way, like we normally think of things, we're probably just going to think it's unfair, unjust, and and get upset, which is what happens in the parable. So this is meant to challenge or correct our way of thinking, kind of like the Beatitudes do. You know, you read the Beatitudes and you think, what in the world is going on here? Like the poor or, or, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not how it works. Blessed are those who mourn. No, 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 that's not right. Uh, blessed are the meek, you know, they'll inherit the earth. And you're thinking, that's not how things work in the world. Blessed are those who hunger. But in God's economy, in the way he does things, it, it, do, it does work that way. So we start out with a master of a house who owns a vineyard. The implication is that it's harvest time and the work that needs to be done is going to be too much for his normal staff. So he needs to go out and hire Uh, more workers in the form of day laborers. Uh, Being a day laborer was not a great way to earn a living then, still not a great way to earn a living today, even though this is still a a real thing. Because you never know uh, if there will be work, 
You don't know what kind of work you're going to be doing. You don't know what kind of money you're going to get paid, what kind of boss you're going to get. Every day is going to be different. The one thing you do know is if you don't work, your family doesn't eat that night. So it's a big deal. Uh, day laborers held kind of a low status in, in the culture. Slaves and servants actually had steady jobs with steady pay. So it was, that was a better way to earn a living. So when the vineyard approaches or the vineyard owner approaches them at the beginning of the workday and offers them a denarius to come and work for them, they, this would have been a good offer. They would have been thrilled with this because a denarius uh, was what a Roman soldier made. That was the same amount that they would make. So this is probably a pretty good wage for a day laborer. And now it's important to point out too that those hired first that day, they agreed for the amount they were getting paid. There was like a handshake and a contract kind of made. Yeah, we agree with this. The rest of the, the people that were hired that day, he just said, whatever is right, I will give you. So they were just trusting him to do the right thing. Uh, they didn't really enter into a contract. They didn't know for sure what they were getting, but the first group definitely did. Now the workday at this time, it sounds horrible to me, but it started at 6 a.m. and it ended at 6 p.m. That was normal. So the way it works is uh, he sends the 6 a.m. group into the vineyard. They get to work first. After the first three hours pass, the implication or the assumption is that the landowner realized there's more work to be done than I have workers. So he goes back to the marketplace and and hires more people. And he does this at 9 a.m. He does it at noon, at 3 p.m. And then at 5 p.m., which is just one hour before quitting time. So when he asks that last group who were standing there idle all day, why are you just, you know, why, why you've been here for 11 hours doing nothing? Their response was, we want to work. Right? Nobody, nobody wants to hire us. And he said, you know what? Come into my vineyard. I want you. And this is where, you know, the parable starts to get weird. Um, it was customary, according to Old Testament law at that time, to pay your workers at the end of the day. Again, they're relying on this to feed their families. So they need their pay that day. Now, imagine you're one of the workers who was hired first. You put in 12 hours in the scorching hot sun, you're beat, you're exhausted, Uh, it comes time to pay up, and everybody's lining up, and the first oddity would be that those who got there last are first in line, and you who've been there all day are at the back of the line. I'd already be irritated at this point, thinking, hey, I I got here first, first in, first out, I want to go home, put my feet up, open up a cold, you know, root beer, because we're Christians, and, 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 and spend time with my family. That's what I'm thinking. And uh, I shouldn't have to wait for everybody else to get paid. But then you see something that is a little promising. When the first person of the last group gets paid, they get a denarius, a full day's wage. And just, let's say it's 100 bucks. So what's going through your mind at that point? You're going, oh, hot dog. This guy's paying $100 an hour. You know, cha-ching, steak and lobster. That's what we're having for dinner tonight. This is um, pretty exciting for a second, but then it it slowly changes to confusion and then irritation and then anger as he watches every worker, no matter when they got there, get paid the exact same amount, including those from his own group. So this is where it's like, okay, let the grumbling and complaining begin. You can hear the cries of that's not fair. You almost feel like saying it, you know, it's like, this isn't fair. This isn't right. But the vineyard owner defends himself saying he's not wronged or cheated anyone. He's been generous. He's honored his agreements. And he's allowed to to do what he chooses with what belongs to him. And then Jesus restates the point he's making that the last will be first and the first last. So before we try to explain the parable, let's kind of define the cast of characters just to make sure we're on the same page. Uh, The master, 
of the house or the owner of the vineyard is God. The workers are believers who have been invited into God's vineyard. Uh, The hours of the day could be a few things. Uh, This could could represent like uh, when when a little child becomes a Christian and and lives their entire life, you know, know, but basically as a Christian, they they don't know anything different. That could be a a 12-hour Christian. And then the, 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 or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, 12 hour. And then the one hour Christian is the person on their deathbed uh, who just throws up a quick prayer at the end of their life saying, save me. And, you know, he gets in. So the thief on the cross would have been like that, that last hour Christian. Uh, it could also be referring to Jews who were God's people first, and then Gentiles who kind of sneak in at the last and get all the bennies, you know, and, and there could be this kind of thing going on. Um, what I kind of think makes the most sense for me is um, this is kind of the idea of the amount of time and effort or service that each of us puts in as a Christian. So there's some 12-hour Christians that if the church doors are open, they're here. They, they have perfect attendance, the gold star on their chart. They're reading their Bible every day. They're praying every day. They're serving. They're fasting. They're sharing their faith. This is what their life is like. They're just those Christians. And then there's the, you know, the one-hour Christians. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not pointing any fingers, but you know, it's the people that don't do a whole lot. Every once in a while, they might open up their Bible and kind of, you know, blow the dust off and read something, or, you know, they might every once in a while throw a little something in the box or whatever, you know, just, they're, they're not doing a whole lot. Um, those are kind of the options as far as the, the workers. The wages given in the parable generally just refer to eternal life. I don't think this is speaking about um, rewards that we may earn in heaven. I think there's other passages that, that talk about rewards, but I think this is just referring to eternal life in general. So what do we learn from this parable? I'm going to give you all of them at once, and then we're going to go through them individually. So the first one is that God wants the needy. The second one is that comparing is dangerous. The third one is that God is absurdly generous. The fourth one is that there's no place for grumbling in the vineyard. And then the last one is that grace is the great equalizer. Okay, God wants the needy. This is good news. And in the parable, we see the landowner seeking out day laborers to come into the vineyard. I already mentioned this was not not a great way to earn a living. They didn't have steady jobs. They had to continually rely on somebody else to meet their needs uh, in order to survive. And so if you were part of this group, it would have been vitally important to find someone to hire you every day or you and your family don't eat. So the landowner, God, goes out hour after hour after hour seeking those who need help, and he's willing to receive anyone who wants it and invite them into his vineyard. (laughs) That's just such good news for for us as sinners. He just keeps going out and seeking and and bringing us in. Um, Now, we probably wouldn't do things the way um, God does. Uh, If you were looking to hire somebody to work for you and you went out to the day laborer group at the marketplace, who would you hire? Um, you would absolutely go after the best. You, you would try to find the most impressive, the strongest, the most capable, the first. That's who you would want to hire. Who would you avoid hiring? Well, you don't want the weak, the disabled, the, the people that aren't very smart or hardworking. You don't want the unreliable. You definitely don't want any addicts coming in, right? You don't want those with bad reputations. Those are those, the undesirables. You, know, you would avoid the last. That's not how God is. Um, here, you know, the, we want the first always and not the last. God wants everyone. 
Uh, and it, this even kind of goes back to the rich young ruler. When, when they saw that, that he walked away and God didn't, you know, like, why, why isn't he in? That, that's who we would think would be in. They were stumped. Uh, but that's not the way Jesus does it. Look who Jesus picks instead. I, I love thinking about the 12. I mean, they're not the cream of the crop. They're not like the, the winning team. This isn't, it doesn't make sense. And he's like, you, you guys are the ones that are going to be sitting on thrones in my kingdom. Like, this is weird, right? It's upside down. But God um, not only invites these needy workers to the vineyard, but he also pays them above and beyond what they deserve. So he wants the needy, especially the most needy, and the people that nobody else wants. So I love that he doesn't leave anybody behind or, or forget about them. The, the next one we see in this, and this is kind of the, the big one on here, is that comparing is just a dangerous game. Um, this is where all the drama in the vineyard begins that day. Everybody was completely happy about their situation until they started comparing themselves to others. Right? It, 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 the people that worked for, for 12 hours, they happily agreed on this wage. Remember, they, they liked it at first. Would they have felt cheated if they didn't ever find out what the others were paid? No, they would have, been, they would have happily gone home. They, Honey, you won't believe how much I made today. They would have been really happy about this. Um, the only reason they felt cheated was because they started comparing. And, and this is such a dangerous thing for us to do. <laughs> One of the big reasons why it's so dangerous for do, to do this is we, we really don't have an accurate picture or the full story when we do our comparison game. We're making assumptions uh, based on the vantage point we have very often. So for instance, uh, I, I know a lot of you guys probably dislike social media, but if you know anything about it, you know what this is like. If you were to look at the lives of most people on social media, on their accounts, uh, what would your conclusions be? you would assume that everybody else's life is way better than yours and that your life stinks. That's, that's what I usually come away with. They have better homes, better families, better outings, better meals, uh, better hair days. Uh, there, there is a life to be envied. And uh, the truth is they probably just have better filters and know how to use Photoshop better than I do, right? But it, it's, it's, you know, I'm duped by it. Uh, but the truth is we're not getting the real picture you're often just seeing people pretending. They're pretending to be trouble-free and happy and blessed, when in reality, they're probably insecure, maybe a little bit embarrassed about what their life is really like, and they don't really any, you know, want anybody to see any of that, so they, they create this kind of facade. And um, we buy it. We get duped by it. Why can't my life be like theirs? Why can't my marriage look like that? Why can't my kids be well-behaved like theirs? Why can't I be happy like them? You know, nobody posts the real stuff. You don't see anybody taking a video of their kid just throwing a tantrum at the grocery store because they didn't get what they wanted or the fight they had with their spouse where a door gets slammed and somebody walks out. You don't see that. You don't see the dishes just growing out of the sink in the kitchen, the dirty dishes or, or the mold growing in the shower. Nobody's snapping pictures of that right? You're not seeing late payment notices for their, my credit card bill. It's like, hey, look at this. You know, we're way behind. Nope. <laughs> you don't see that. You don't see the medicine cabinet filled with all the meds that people are taking. And just to get through their day, nobody's being honest about things. You know, they keep it all behind the curtain and you just get to see the highlight reel. And it sucks all the joy out of us. We, we let that happen. 
And I'm not immune to it either. This is the sad truth is there's pastors out there and I'm not picking on anybody, but they post this stuff on social media about how great their churches are and how, how many this, you know, this and this and this and this. And I'm looking at that and just thinking, well, psh, man, we stink. You know, we don't have any of that going on. And, and you know, it's funny. You either get deflated when you see it or you get envious. This is what it brings into your life. The point is, though, that we're assuming things that may not be remotely true about people's lives who actually may be very similar to ours and sometimes even worse than ours. And even though we probably realize this, we're still committed to the comparison. We want to do it. What is it about ourselves that, that just has to do this thing? We have to put people into the first and the last or the haves and the have-nots or the, the deserving and the undeserving. We have to categorize people this way. And at the end of the day, it, it really is just to make ourselves feel better about our lives and about the situation we're in. And so we kind of tend to value people based on two main factors, uh, what, they're, uh, what they can do and then what they're like. So um, if, if you're weak, unskilled, disabled, old, infirmed, kind of the poor and the powerless, um, your value is much less than those who are able to contribute and pull their own weight. And then we do it on, on what people are like too. If you're a foreigner or a minority, a child, a woman, a Gentile, a tax collector, heaven forbid, a sinner, um, you don't deserve the same treatment and blessings as others do. We do this in our society and, and have done it for a long time. But think about who Jesus cared for the most. It was always the underdog, the outcast, the broken, the unwanted, the least. He specialized in, in going after the last. Aren't you glad that God wants and loves the unwanted and unlovable? <laughs> you should because, sorry to break it to you, but it includes you and it includes me. And, and so I'm pretty thrilled that, that he includes me. Um, the comparison game is what took place in the vineyard that day and, and it ruined everything then and it will ruin everything today. You can't categorize people, you know, and determine their worth based on these things. Uh, when we do that, by the way, where do we put ourselves in that mix? I always put myself in the, you know, the, the good category. I give myself lots of grace and, and lots of, you know, it's like I deserve to probably be in the, in the better categories here um, than, than the others. But the gross reality of these comparisons is that we convince ourselves that we deserve more than others and that we aren't getting what we're owed. And this just makes for a very miserable existence. Uh, we had a, a Christmas one morning when our boys were little. We still joke about the story, but it was pretty funny. Uh, Nathaniel and Zane were, the other kids were there too, but I, we were videoing them. That's what I remember. And they were opening their presents and everybody was happy. Lots of presents, lots is going on, you know, good stuff is going on. And then uh, Zane sees Nathaniel open a present and he goes, I wanted that more than him. And all of a sudden, all of the happiness just got just sucked out of the room like a vacuum. And, and now Zane, who was happy a few minutes ago with all the presents he had, now he, he, all he wants is what his brother has. He deserves it more. He wanted it more and he should have it. And Christmas is over. You know, just everything stinks now. <laughs> he went and pouted in the corner. It ruined his day. You know, up until then, things were great. Comparison creates bitterness. Bitterness creates resentment. And resentment creates grumbling. Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. And, and he's right. Now, if, you, if you're just committed to the comparison, you have to do it. Uh, there is one way that's really beneficial to go about it. Uh, compare yourself to Jesus. 
Try, try that one out. Now what do you deserve, right? Now, how's that going? Not good. That immediately replaces ugly envy with great humility. And then the other thing, if, if you still um, feel the need to compare, compare yourself to the less fortunate. I, I remember going, taking a, a group of kids to Mexico one time for um, kind of a missions trip. And we had a VBS that we were doing and they asked us to go hand out flyers to the, the neighboring areas. So we were going out into the hill, hills and places out of town. And I remember taking these flyers out and seeing what looked to me like maybe a shed. It wasn't even like a pen for an animal kind of thing. It was just not great looking. And you'd, you'd walk up and you'd look in and there's a family with a kitchen and they were sleeping in there. They had nothing. They were literally dirt poor. And when we invited these kids to our VBS, I could not believe how happy they were. Perspective is everything. I remember all of us went away from that trip just thinking, we have so much. Why are we not happy? And, and that's the reality. There's this quote by Helen Keller that crushes me every time I hear it. And if you know who she was, it'll crush you too. She says, I, I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. And it just breaks your heart. I'm thinking of somebody with pancreatic cancer writing a gratitude journal. And I'm over here going, what's wrong with me? You know, this is how we are. People always, you know, you ask people, how you doing? And they say, better than I deserve. And they mean it tongue in cheek, but it's real. It's true. We need to learn. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, he wrote this book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It is a rare jewel. You don't see it very often. But as Christians who have Jesus and eternal life and a hundredfold, we should be the most contented people on the planet. Contentedness creates peace and satisfaction and praise. It allows you to be happy for the person that, that receives blessing, even when you don't. I mean, that's kind of the litmus test of what's being um, talked about in this parable. How do you respond when somebody receives a blessing from God that you did not receive and who in your estimation doesn't deserve it? Are you screaming out, that's not fair? Are you mad or are you happy for them? Stop comparing, learn to be grateful for what you have because it's so much more than we deserve. And that brings us to the next one, that our God is absurdly generous. Uh, every one of us is in need of God's generosity. And the good news is he's willing to, to go beyond what we want and, and exceed our expectations. Uh, keeping in mind that God isn't obligated to be generous to any of us. He doesn't owe us anything. But even, even still, there's something that seems wrong with what we see happening in the vineyard that day. We, our sense of justice says that somebody who worked for 12 hours and that, you know, really put in all that effort should get more than the guy that came in the cool of the evening and worked for one hour. We, we don't get that. But the landowner didn't do anything wrong. He didn't cheat anybody. He wasn't unjust in any way. He didn't owe anyone any more than he gave because God is not indebted to anyone. Every good thing he does for us is an act of generosity. And that, that actually even includes the very next breath you take. Right? The next, I think it was Thomas Watson that says that the next breath that you take is, is mercy from God. It is. So God is allowed to do whatever he chooses with what belongs to him. And, and what belongs to him, according to Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all people belong to him. It reminds me of the Abraham Kuyper quote. You've heard it before because I know we've said it here, but he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
It's his. It was created by him and for him. So God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion. And he's perfectly right to do that. I've learned to take great comfort in the fact that God's actions are right simply because they're God's actions. He is holy. He is incapable of wrongdoing or any injustice. And I trust that. Even when I don't understand what's going on, I've learned to just trust that. And when I think about what he did at the cross for me, it all just kind of lights up. It's my true north on the compass. When I start to get all spinning around and wonky, go look at the cross again. What did he do for me there? He's good. He's, you know, I, I can trust him in everything. And this is where like the question comes out. Is salvation a gift received or is it a payment earned? And it's a gift received. We all know this. So God doesn't owe us salvation for something we have done. He gives us salvation despite everything we've done. And that just makes him such a generous God for us. He owes us nothing and he's given us everything in Christ. So it's so good to remember that when we're ever tempted to say, that's not fair or I'm not getting what I deserve or anything like that. Uh, Praise God, he doesn't give us what we truly deserve. Uh, We need to acknowledge how incredibly kind it is that God invited any of us into his vineyard, right? And then that takes us to the next one. There's no place for grumbling in the vineyard. Uh, I'm an expert grumbling. I don't want to brag, but I'm really good at it. I've kind of honed my skills over the years. Uh, it, it's interesting to think about uh, Israel. Uh, we, we tend to kind of pick on them a lot. You know, God was repeatedly and consistently good to the people of Israel, and they were repeatedly and consistently good at grumbling about everything he did or didn't do for them, Right? Have you ever thought about what, that, what that's like to God? Such a slap in the face to God when we, when we grumble and complain. I remember having this realization one day that every time I grumble about my circumstances, I'm, I'm really just bad-mouthing God. <laughs> Have you ever considered that? You know, I'm telling people that my Heavenly Father is doing a lousy job of taking care of me. That's horrible. I mean, imagine your kids, if your kids were little and, and they were just walking around going, well, these are the clothes they picked out for me and uh, you got to see the meals we eat. You know, they just don't even, I mean, you would be, you would feel horrible as a parent. And we do this to God all the time with grumbling and complaining. You know, this is one of those sins that, that we don't act like it's a big deal. We, we tend to, you know, chart sins as really good and really bad or really, you know, this kind of thing. And this is a big one. God doesn't like it when we grumble. What should we do instead? What's the opposite of grumbling or or begrudging God? It would be proclaiming his wonderful works. It would be praising his great name. It would be being thankful and content. So has God been good to you? Scream it from the mountaintops, right? Brag about your father. Uh, Brag about your savior to anybody who will listen. And then the last one on the list is that great grace is the great equalizer. Uh, And this is that idea that the first will be last and the last will be first. And this really has to do with the way we view things. Again, this isn't, this isn't the way it works in the kingdom, but, but we do this. We, um, we elevate one person and demote another, but the cross just kind of levels the playing field. It, it makes everything even out. And, and this is the weird part of this. When I, as I thought about what does it mean that the first are last and the last are first, and I was tripping on it for quite a bit. And then I just thought, it's kind of like, it, you know, when you shine light through a prism, it looks one way and then it just changes the way it looks. I feel like God takes our, our idea of first and last and just kind of, you know, morphs it into this, this thing that now looks different than what, we, what we're used to. 
we're used to the first getting every advantage and the last, um, you know, getting no advantage, but, but God somehow takes that and evens it out. So it's not about the work we do. It's not about uh, the, the worth we have. It's all about his grace and what he's done for us that, that, that makes this possible. Grace is the difference maker. Um, there's a, a pastor you guys might've heard of. Every once in a while, he comes up with something good. His name's John MacArthur, you know. Uh, anyway, he had something that really helped me with this when I read it. And so I'm just gonna read what he wrote about the first and the last. He's talking about the idea of a race. He says, I used to run races, And to figure out what is meant here, I just sort of looked back to my athletic background, the last first and the first last. Now, the only way for the last to be first and the first to be last would be if they all crossed the finish line in a dead heat, right? I mean, if you're last, you're last. But if you're last and first, and if you're first and last, that means you end in a dead heat. The only way to be first and last at the same time is to cross the finish line altogether. If there are 10 people in a race and they're all first and they're all last, it's a dead heat. The first are last and the last are first because everybody finishes the same. This is amazing to think about. I think about some of the greatest Christians that have ever lived and I think about me and somehow we, we finish the same How is that possible? And again, this isn't talking about rewards. It's talking about eternal life. And it's possible because of the goodness of God. It's possible because his grace is real. It's possible because he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he makes us holy and blameless and pure. You know, this is is what happened in the vineyard that day. This is the picture of that. And this is what it's meant to, to point out. So the question is, have you left everything to follow Jesus? You will not be disappointed. When we line up at the end of the day to collect our pay, we get eternal life and a hundredfold more, whatever that is going to be. But until that day comes, don't fall into the trap of comparison because it will steal your joy and it will cause you to grumble against our wonderful God. Trust that he knows what's best. Even when you don't understand it, he's working out his plans and his purposes all the time. Even when we don't think it's fair, you know, I don't know how some of this works. I think about it a lot. Why, why do I have things that other people don't have? Uh, why do some people have a lot of money and some people have nothing? You know, and I think, well, God knows what, what's good for us. He knows that if I had, you know, I'm a daily bread guy. I've just learned that. That's what I'm, I'm going to be a daily bread guy for the rest of my life. I'm probably never going to have too much because as the proverb writer says, I'll forget God. I'll probably never have too little because then I'd be tempted to steal and sin. So most of us are probably daily bread people. He's a good father. He knows what we need. You know, I don't know why one person is blessed all the time and another person goes through incredible hardship and suffering. You know, yesterday we just went to a funeral for this beautiful 30-year-old 30, 30 girl, sweetest girl I probably have ever met, and, and she's gone. And then you have some grumpy old curmudgeon that lives to be 110. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of anybody. I don't know why I was born in a country like this. You know, is it because I deserved it? No, certainly not. And then you've got Christians in China and Korea right now that are, that are fighting for their lives to follow Christ. They're at risk every day. Is it because they deserve it? No. You know, we, 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 we can't play that game. Here's what I know to be true. Our God loves us 
And he's gone to great lengths to bring us into his vineyard and to make sure that every one of us is taken care of and provided for, regardless of how smart we are, how skilled we are, how, you know, any of that popular, it doesn't, none of that matters. You know, what's in it for us? We get God. That's it. I mean, we get God. We get to be part of his kingdom and his family. So to close, I'm just going to read 2 Timothy chapter 4 to just hopefully inspire us to just keep on keeping on. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. Father, thank you so much that um, we know where this crown of righteousness comes from. It comes from the righteousness of Christ. It comes because he was willing to be our substitute and take our sins upon himself and, and give us that righteousness. And so this is a crown that I know we're going to throw back to you. Uh, we don't deserve it, Lord, but thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for making us your people. Um, Lord, help us to, to, to let everybody who you know, we can know about the goodness of a God who um, loves us so much and, and is willing to let us come into his vineyard. Amen.